Human beings are a funny creature, and we like to compare and contrast a lot of things. So Rolling Stone came out with this list of the 250 greatest guitar players of all time. Look, there, there are good guitar players. I'm a pretty good guitar player, but there are good guitar players everywhere. Then there's great guitar players, and you could find them in any town with, with a tattoo parlor, right? There's going to be people better than you everywhere. And then there are guitar gods, a lot of them on this list. And then there are guitar gods who give birth, not literally, but almost quite literally, to other guitar gods. And one of those is with us now, a guitar god who gives birth to other guitar gods, Mr. Joe Satriani. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, that's that's great. Thank you. What a fantastic <laughs> introduction. Thank you. It's a bit of a visual, but uh, it's incredibly true. I mean, you are the guy. You are the the wizard that many of us look up to as as the goat of guitar players. How do you feel about this this list and this this incessant need for people out there to compare and contrast and list their betters and who's best? And do you people of your caliber even pay attention to this kind of noise, or is it what is it? I think there's there's definitely two ways to think about it. Uh, maybe there's three. Yeah. So we'll start from the back. The third way to look at it is that it's just fun, you know. They're, in other words, people are talking about guitar players. Thank God, right? So for us guitar players, we have to look at that and go like, okay, great. At least we're we're in the conversation, which is great because sometimes we're not, and uh, we we're trying to get people to listen to our music, and so. Uh, that that's important. Um, the other side of it is the the fact that we don't really think that way. I think the serious artists know that there's no way to really put artistic uh, creation together with success in the marketplace and all the way on the other side to technical ability. It just really doesn't make any sense. That the you know like the fastest player is not the most successful player necessarily, but they can be for a moment. But you can't use those elements to judge, I think. Um, and I think um, that that can be confusing for someone who's starting out because they want to know what should I do? What should I, how should I practice? You know, should I concentrate on my haircut? <laughs> should I get a good lawyer? Uh, I think that, that was Frank Zappa's advice, right? Get a good haircut and a good lawyer. Uh, or should I just express myself on my instrument and not pay attention to anybody. And if I'm lucky, I'll get successful in spite of, you know, me not paying attention to the trends or whatever. Um, and, and so on, on that level, that number two I, is, a, is a big one. It's a philosophical one that uh, players that really do deliver new creative messages through their guitar to the audience, they, they have to, it's going to be an internal struggle, but that's okay. It's just, I think that's going to hit an architect and a scientist in the same way. They, they have to figure those things out for themselves. The other thing is, I think the first one, which is the one that hits the average person who might see it come by on their social media feed, somebody's that they never even listened to is in the top 100, and someone they listen to their whole life is somehow 199 or 249, and they go like, you know, where, where are these Rolling Stone editors at? You know, it's like, how could they come up with that? And so I get that all the time. You know, people will, I won't pay attention to it, but my inbox gets flooded with people saying, you know, this is a travesty. This is, can you believe it? You need to call somebody. <laughs> this person's ahead of that person, you know, and it, but it's a joke. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, I think it's just 
Rolling Stone having some fun and they're pretty good at it. <laughs> so I'm not going to get in their way. <laughs> There's one thing I think a lot of us could agree on that they got right on the list is that Jimi Hendrix is at the top. Um, yeah. And I know that he has a special place in your heart starting off the very beginning. You actually quit in the middle of football practice when you hear Jimi Hendrix passed away. Is that right? Back, yeah, that's right. You're like yeah. 14, 15 years old. Can you take us back to that moment at all? Yeah, it was, it's, it's funny. It, it rolls back, you know, like I'm, I'm nine going on 10. I become a drummer. I'm taking lessons at home. A uh, professional teacher came to my house once a week and teach me down in the basement. I tried really hard for about three years and started to a phase out from being a drummer because I thought, I don't think I can get these four limbs to truly behave like Mitch Mitchell or, you know, uh, other drummers that I was listening to at the time. And um, I think uh, I started to really uh, be influenced by the, the playlists of my older siblings, my older sisters, my older brother. So I just had this, this musical catalog in my head uh, that was a little bit ahead of my years at the time. And by the time uh, I was turning 14, I really had gotten into Hendrix. I just, I just thought he was the greatest thing. Every time I heard his music, it stopped me in my tracks. I didn't know what he was doing. I wasn't a guitar player. I just loved it. And it really... I think changed my DNA that first moment I that I heard his music coming through the radio. Um, so there I am though, I'm, I'm just a young kid and I'm on the football team. I've always loved being in sports. So it was a normal thing to be on the football team. And I was all suited up, standing right outside the gym, ready to walk out onto the field at Car Place uh, Public High School. And a teammate just came up and said, hey, that guy you like, Hendricks, I just heard he died. And then that, you know, changed my life right there. That was a, that was something that devastated me. So I just turned around and I walked into the coach's office. Uh, coach's name was Mr. Redden, ex-Marine, hardcore guy. And he, there must have been something on my face, the look of my face or something, because I just said, look, Hendricks died. I'm quitting the football team. And he just said, okay, go, go do what you want, you know, and I was expecting a big argument <laughs> and a threat. Uh, I think it was, uh, you know, uh, I think there was a little extra thing going on there, which was I wasn't a very good football player, obviously, because I wasn't big enough. And, and you know, once you turn 14, the big guys start to grow big, you know, uh, in your class. And so people start to separate. So uh, that may have had something to do with it. He figured, I don't really need that kid, you know that long haired kid who wants to play, you know, rock and roll. So <laughs> yeah, I went home that night and uh, at the dinner table, I said, I stood up and I said, I have an announcement, you know, I'm going to become a guitar player because Jimi Hendrix died. And it was a lot of yelling and screaming and confusion. But when, when everything settled, uh, I got the go ahead and it was my task then to not give up. Like I had given up on the drums that if, I was going to get cooperation from my parents and siblings that I was going to have to prove that I was going to really do it this time. Do you happen to remember your first guitar? Did you have a good first guitar at that point? Well, it's uh, right around that same time. Uh, my sister Marion had, uh, you know, been playing folk guitar uh, for years. Uh, she wrote folk songs and it was a nylon acoustic and she would play it at her high school. 
And so she had uh, let me borrow the guitar with a little chord sheet that had about 17 chords on it. And she was showing me where I could put my fingers. But that day, uh, uh, that evening, uh, when I said that I wanted to change my life and become a, an electric guitar player, uh, my sister Carol said that she would uh, donate her first paycheck from being an art teacher at the Westbury High School to getting me a guitar. And I had seen one down at the local mall, uh, and it was a Hagstrom 3. It kind of looked like a a white Stratocaster, but in, in my you know kid's brain, I didn't really know the difference. I didn't know what what to look for in an electric guitar. I, I just saw the horns. It was kind of like those Hagstroms, they kind of look like a cross between a Stratocaster and an SG. Uh, and, and it just looked really cool. And it was about a hundred bucks or $120, something like that, which was a lot of money for us. So, uh, so that was a commitment and, and I had to work it off. I had to show everyone I was going to go the distance with it. How long did it take for you to realize that you're probably quite a bit more advanced than the other kids that might've been playing at your age? <laughs> I have never felt that way. Really? <laughs> no, I, I've never felt that way, but I, I learned really early on to enjoy what I was and my position compared to other talented people. Cause you have to imagine I, I start out um, uh, I'm the only one in the family who's decided to try to become a musician. Everyone had far more good sense to look for a real job. And, uh, and so I'm playing and I'm thinking like, how come I don't sound like Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and, you know, Pete Townsend and Keith Richards, all these great guitar players. I'm, I'm just, I'm listening to it, but I, I can't figure out their finger positions. I can't find a teacher who's cool enough, who understands rock music. And, you know, there's no internet, no DVDs, video cassettes. There's none of that. You're kind of like stuck with uh, searching your community, you know, your, your uh, people close by to show you what to do. And I, I really had nobody. Um, so, it seemed to me like I was struggling. And at the same time, I was getting a really fantastic education in music theory from a guy named Bill Westcott, who was a young teacher right out of Juilliard, and he was teaching music at Car Place High School. And I really got along with this guy. And he somehow, you know, he would look at me, you have to imagine, <laughs> I had hair down past my shoulders, wearing motorcycle boots, black jeans, black t-shirt, denim jacket. I listened to Black Sabbath and Zeppelin and Hendrix. And he somehow decided that he would still spend a few extra moments with me to teach me music theory any way that he could. So when I got home and I would pick up the guitar, I started to see music on the instrument. And this really was my ticket. And this was part of a lesson that he gave me once when he, he said, you know, it may turn out when you're 18 or 19 that you're not as good as a guitar player as you thought you were going to be. And you're going to reach a physical limit, but your mind, your musical mind can keep going forward until you're 80 years old. He said, so that's what you should be concentrating on. Don't give up the practicing and learning songs and all that kind of stuff, but this is where all the really cool stuff is going to happen. And I took that to heart and I started to realize that whatever uh, sort of physical roadblocks that I was feeling, like if I was slower, I couldn't stretch or my fingers hurt or I couldn't pick the way I saw other people picking, 
uh, the strengths that I would, I would come up with a workaround using my brain. Uh, and then around that same time, I start to meet these young kids who want to take lessons from me because they've seen me play at the high school gym or at the park or some backyard party or something like that. Uh, one of them was little Steve Vai. And he was 12 years old when I met him. He went to the same high school. So we kind of knew all the same people. Got in trouble in all the same places, <laughs> like the same music. But I knew after a couple of weeks that he was uniquely talented. And I thought, oh, my God, this guy is going to go so far past me physically, you know, with with his technique as he just had it. Uh, and then as we as we kept moving forward the lessons, I realized that his brain also had that same hunger that mine did, that we really wanted to know the secrets of music, all of it, not just rock guitar. And uh, I think this is where that real, that special bond between us uh, was forged. Uh, it's also where, as I said before, I learned that lesson really early that I was not the guy in the group that could play the fastest, stretch his fingers the furthest, play the most complicated or any of that stuff. Uh, that was not me. And what really excited me was writing music that I don't think anyone else could write. And to, uh, to, to push the boundaries of chord progressions uh, and combining uh, rhythms and melodies and these chord progressions into creating new music. And I, I love that. I love that more than sitting down practicing, you know, a particular run for eight hours day after day until it was faster than the way my friend could play it. You know, <laughs> I got no joy from that. So um, that, that, that's, that was a turning point for me, I think. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is so much different than like traditional rock and roll where you have a singer, right? Because you, you are the singer. You're the voice with your, with your notes and your hands. And it, can you talk about how different that is maybe than the traditional rock star, not lifestyle, but you know, how it's marketed and how it's received by the public. You're, you're, you're preaching to a very specific audience of guitar player, guitar players around the world. Are those audiences like different from one another? Are they growing? What is, what is that kind of world like compared to, I guess, maybe the rest of the music industry? Yeah, I, I think, uh, it, you know, I mean, instrumental music has been around for centuries and uh, as we know, and um, but there's nothing uh, that communicates more directly, I think, than the human voice. And so uh, I'm, I'm not competing, I'm not fighting against, I'm not trying to change the world. Um, and if I could sing really well, I would. <laughs> but I've been in bands where the singers are like, you recognize that they were born that way, that they have a special gift. So um, that's, I'm not even, I ne it never enters my mind. Um, but, uh, I think that, um, when I started, uh, listening to guitar players, mainly like really paying attention, 
which was early Beatles and Stones, a British invasion music that my older siblings were listening to, that I would always gravitate towards the, the brooding, the moody, the instrumental part uh, of, of the album for some reason. And when Hendrix came out, I remember listening to that first album and Third Stone from the Sun made such a big impact on me. You know, all my friends wanted me to play Foxy Lady and and uh, Purple Haze. And, and I kept saying that we should be playing Third Stone from the Sun. That is like, that's music to me. And uh, it was in those early days, it was cathartic just to sit and listen to it. You know, just to pay attention so closely to what he was doing. And so that connection to the guitar as an instrumental uh, music generator was uh, really important to me that those early experiences, just sitting down and focusing on what was coming off of the, the albums uh, was really important. I love that part of it. And I started to notice that players all over the spectrum of, uh, of music were, um, were displaying that talent. Like I heard my parents playing West Montgomery and I thought that's, that's perfect. That's beautiful. That's, that's exactly what I would do if I was a, a jazz guitar player. That's just like the, the epitome of, of perfection on jazz guitar. Um, when I heard them playing Miles Davis records and I heard the way Miles played, I thought this is perfect. This, you don't hear uh, somebody reciting uh, or regurgitating all of their practice routines in front of you to try to get a rise, to try to get validated, you know. You just, it's just music. You know what I mean? It's like when you listen to Hendrix, you can't hear any exercises. You don't hear scales the way that you would lift them off of a, uh, an instruction manual, you know, about how to play a scale or how to play guitar. This I thought was really high art. They were, they were creating music on their instruments, but they weren't simply showing you what they've practiced. And that really, uh, struck a chord within me. And, uh, I, I started to notice that with other play players. Like, so uh, in, in my high school band, we'd go to play some Humble Pie and I'd listen to Peter Frampton play a solo. And I think, what is that? <laughs> it's like, what are all those extra notes? And why does it sound so beautiful and melodic? And it was because Peter is just who he is. That's the way he played. He didn't really try to copy anybody or, or display again, practicing technique. So I started to, figure out that there was a difference between people who played and tried to get their music out to you and people who played to try to get famous for their technical accomplishments. And I started to see that this was a, this was an important line. You had to draw a line in your daily routine. Like, am I going to concentrate on writing original music and playing in an original way, or am I just going to try to get ahead, you know, with, the physical attributes that I have. Uh, it's again, I think I've mentioned this before to one of your other questions, but you know, musicians, they have to make decisions every day because it's really hard to find time to practice. It's really hard to allocate the minimal funds you might have to decide, am I going to buy strings or another guitar or a pedal or, you know, should I just stick with what I got? <laughs> and, and so these decisions sometimes are more, uh, simple in the real world. And other times they're, they're really philosophical. Like, should I practice or should I 
work, figure out a way to tear open my heart and share my true feelings with my audience. That's uh, I know that's a, that's a big one, but that's, I think the real one. And what about like getting in a rut, like a creative rut? Cause this, this translates, I think to all creatives when you, when you're stuck, you know, playing those, those repetitive notes or the scales or that, that, that practice routine, and that's all you can get out. How do you break free? What's your personal? Cause I, I'm sure you probably everybody, all creatives go through it, right? I'm assuming a lot here, <laughs> but yeah. assuming you get to that point, what do you do to break free of that kind of monotony or that, uh, that repetitive trap? Oh, well, if let's say if you're just a guitar player and you don't have any other creative outlet, um, I would say just stop playing uh, all the stuff that you're playing currently and put on some music that you never listen to. So if if you're into country music and you never listen to heavy metal uh, or something like that, go put on some heavy metal and just say, can I play that? Like, how is that guitar player actually doing that? How like if I had to sit in with Gojira, how could I accomplish that? And then you know, spend a week on it. Maybe you know, if you can, if you're not gigging and you don't have responsibilities like that, then try to figure that out. And I would say the opposite way. You can you know, if you're a heavy metal guitar player, get some you know, look up Roy Clark on YouTube and say, wow, look at that guy play. Yeah. <laughs> like, can I do that? Like, how does he do that? How do you, how do you get to that level of supreme musicianship, even though it's not your style, you know, that you're not going to listen to it, uh, you know, during your, your daily routine, you, as a guitar player, it would really open up some new vistas for you to try to embrace a Roy Clark and, and a country guitar player looking at Goodyear or whatever. So you can imagine you just mix and match. I used to find that uh, I'd go and, Years ago, I bought um, a Rolling Stone songbook. And, and traditionally, songbooks are goofy because they generally don't really get into uh, this, the unique tunings that bands use, rock bands. You know, they just retune. They're a half step higher, half step lower, open tunings, whatever. And so they have to kind of, I don't want to use the phrase dumb it down, but they have to make it more accessible to everyone. So, you know, a song that was recorded in E shows up on E as E flat in the sheet music. Hmm. Uh, but I just, one of these days, I, I, it went by me and I thought, you know, I love the Stones. I've been listening to them my whole life, but I purposely have avoided learning every single song because I don't want to copy them. And it would take too much time because their catalog is huge. But I, you know, I'd get to a week and I'd say, no, this is what I'm going to do. I just finished a tour every day. I'm just going to open up that songbook and I'm going to pick a song that I don't hear very often from their catalog. And I'm just going to learn how to play it and see what happens when my fingers fall where Keith's fell <laughs> when they recorded it. And you learn things like that from just playing outside uh, of your normal routine. And then you can do it by yourself. You don't need a band. You don't need to get invited to somebody else's gig or session. It's it's something that you can do on your own. And uh, that's a that's an old fashioned style way of doing it. Uh, boy, if I had YouTube when I was a kid, I would have learned so much faster. Um, but uh, so today, if I'm thinking about something uh, that I always loved and but never really sat down and figured out how to play. I can find it in two seconds and I can find a hundred people doing it in slightly different ways and I can look at it, which I think is really important 
because uh, when you see somebody play it, you learn so much just about. Do you posture. think that would have helped or hurt your your progression? I, I don't think there's any way to to figure that out. There's no way to answer that question, really. It just is, you know. Sure. It just is. I, you know, I was just thinking. Somebody asked me the other day about, uh, you know, simplicity, complexity, and and uh, I was reminded of this story in one of the chapters of that great book about uh, Beethoven. It's a very complete book about his entire life, everything from when he was born uh, to when he passed away. And uh, this one uh, set of chapters was dealing with the fact that he was, you know, desperate for money most of the time. And music publishing started to kick up because pianos were getting made for uh, regular people that they would put in their parlors, you know. And he made a deal to write 60 pieces for money that he desperately needed. But he was instructed, please, just like some simple stuff, you know, so that people can put the sheet music up and they can play them, you know. Um, and because they're, you know, kids and, and parents and stuff like that, just having, you know, playing music in their home. It was a new thing. And so he he did the right thing, which was he did dumb it down, you know, than his usual complexity. But we have this beautiful, you know, collection of Beethoven now that we don't think of in terms of, you know, complexity or non-complexity or good or bad or anything. We don't, the world has forgotten why he did it and isn't passing gestures. They're just saying, wow, when you hear Moonlight Sonata, you go, who cares if it's easy to play? <laughs> That's beautiful, you know? So would YouTube have made a difference for me and Steve when we were kids growing up on Long Island, learning how to play guitar? I think it would have uh, enhanced uh, our playing, but um, I suppose the bigger question is, if there was YouTube, uh, you know, back in 1970, what would have been on it? I mean, I remember that year. It was a crazy year. I, I can't imagine some of that stuff being available uh, every second of the day every, from every part of the world. I mean, the world's always been crazy, but it, I remember it being particularly crazy. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, let's fast forward, what, uh, 30 years or so. I mean, uh, it's quite a career to kind of gloss over, but maybe we can return and, and, and zero in on some of those those points. But uh, let's let's forward to the, the, the mid-90s. And you are in the full swing of your career. You decide to get Steve Vai and Eric Johnson together for this G3 thing. How did you get that started? Why? And uh, how's it going now? Well, it's an interesting period because I'd survived um, the popularity of, of surfing. You know, I went from obscurity to having a platinum album. And uh, I all of a sudden, I went from trying to be a solo artist for about three weeks. And, and I wound up in Mick Jagger's solo band. A lot happened. It was it it might seem like it was overnight success, but actually it was decades of super hard work. And um, 
But there I was uh, after a couple of years of, of riding high and, you know, surfing was out and, and flying and the extremist, uh, all really successful records and tours were very successful. I'd come back from a really long tour in Europe and I, I went into the Bill Graham management offices um, and uh, I said to the guys, look, everything's great. And thank you. You know, everything's been going great. However, <laughs> I said, I feel so isolated i said every time uh, you know i'm in london uh, all my friends are in la or new york or sydney or tokyo and then when i finally get to sydney or tokyo or la or new york they're all in paris or frankfurt or something i said when when do we all get to hang out because when i was a kid i always imagined you know sitting listening to albums and reading you know uh the rock and roll magazines that musicians hung out with each other all the time you know right and because you'd see pictures of Hendrix with Clapton and Jeff Beck, and you hear all these stories, and you think, well, that's what I want to do. I just want to hang out with my fellow guitar players and do all this collaborating. But in fact, the, in my world of guitar slingers, we were kept separate. And we, you know, you, you started to realize, like, even though at home, when you play guitar, you didn't feel this competition, you know, you would hear it from the person from the press person that, well, you can't get the cover because that guy's getting the cover and that person doesn't want to be on the show because he doesn't like you. And, and his manager says he should never be anywhere near you. And the promoters are saying, well, I'd rather see this guy in March and that guy in April and the other guy in July. I don't want them close to each other. And all I saw was barriers, you know, just like brick walls and fences. And my main complaint was I want to hang out with my fellow guitar players. So what can we do? And I, I started to see a lot more festivals kick up like Lollapalooza. And I said, I know it's a stretch, but what if we made our own festival of some kind where all of the guitar players would want to come and play with each other? Uh, it's obvious there are fans out there who want to see the guitar players. Why make them wait and, and never see us collaborate, you know, when they see other artists collaborating in, in different styles. So I didn't think it was that odd. You know, I mean, Al Demiola, John McLaughlin, and Paco had done it acoustically. I saw the Three Tenors album going platinum. Uh, when I was growing up, my parents had lots of jazz records where the horn players would get together. They'd have three or four famous horn players uh, putting together great live albums or studio albums. So I didn't think it was that unusual, uh, but it did take about three or four hours of us sort of hashing out these ideas like what's possible. We whittled it down to three because we realized that, um, you know, when you go out and you, you go to book a, the Beacon Theater, you're literally renting it, right? So you right. rent it for a night and they have rules, you know, you can come in at this time to load in, the union says you got to stop and do nothing during these periods. You have to take the stage here and you better be off the stage there. And by this time you're out of here. Wow. <laughs> Those are the rules, right? So that's just the reality of touring for all musicians. And uh, so we figure, well, how are we going to get all these guitar players? Like we can't have 15. No one's going to show up on tour and play one song. Right. <laughs> so, as we, we kept on going, well, what about five? What about four? When we got to three and we realized if it's three guys, then everyone gets to play anywhere from 45 minutes to 55 minutes. 
which is enough time for them to play songs from the new album, songs that their fans really want them to play that's from their extensive catalog, if they've got one. And that way they feel like they're they're doing the business they need to do because they'd be touring with G3 in lieu of, you know, touring on their own. Um, so we had to work out that kind of a detail. Then it, it, it literally took an, a year because I knew who I wanted. I really wanted Steve and Eric to be the, the first two guys that I brought out. And it just really did take a long time to convince not so much them, but I think their managers and record companies that, yes, these three gunslingers were going to stand right next to each other every night. And it was inevitable. Someone was going to play better than the other one at some point on, you know, night after night. And, but I kept telling them like, forget about it. The audience doesn't care. They walk in the door, they know who their favorite is. You're not going to change your mind. That's not why they're there. They're there to enjoy all three of us, to love the one that's their favorite. And then to go, Oh my God, they're actually playing together. They're playing that song that I've never heard them play on their albums and they're doing it together and they're improvising and they're having fun and they're getting us to join in, you know? Um, and it, it worked. I mean, it, it was the feeling I had was that me being in the audience, that's what I wanted to see. And, and I felt like I was being deprived of that experience and that together with the fact that I felt that my success with isolating me from my fellow musicians those two factors really drove me to to make sure that we would accomplish this concert series can you talk about the, a little bit about the difference between your playing styles between the three of you because i mean you and steve kind of have a little bit of a you know similar kind of tone almost not the same playing style at all but then eric johnson's kind of the, the softer kind of rolled back almost country sound into the mix. Yeah. Can you expand on and then the way the three of you kind of bounce off each other and how that dynamic works? Well, first of all, they're, they're unbelievably uh, talented musicians. You know, what they hold in their hearts and in their minds and how they get it out on the guitar is just insanely amazing. Um, they, you know, I can, I can look at the two of them and I can say, well, I know where Steve comes from because <laughs> I could walk to his house in 10 minutes, you know, growing up. Uh, and Eric grew up in an entirely different place and had different influences. Um, and, uh, and so at, as, as we grow up, you know, we like what we like and we gravitate towards that. And whether we're uh, musicians or artists, we're going, it's going to be reflected in, in what we produce. Um, so there's that that's really uh, different. I think what unites us uh, as a, as a trio is that we love the guitar we love that it can sound so many different ways. We love listening to somebody play something that we never would have played or thought of. Uh, we like being surprised. Uh, we love improvising. We love uh, playing with the element of sound as part of the artistic expression. In, in that way, I think because we're because of our generation, we just we we heard Hendrix uh, use sound. Uh, in a masterful way to convey feelings. And before then it was more like notes, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but once the volume went up and distortion was involved and people started playing with feedback and there were pedals that did different things, the, uh, you know, the sound became part of the message and, and that's our generation. You know, we, we grew up learning how to play as that 
was being uh, practiced for the first time, let's say. Um, now, Steve and I, it's a whole other thing because I can't explain it, but all I know is that when we start to play on stage together, we, we're just sort of picking up where we left off. And it's almost as if we're just kids again and we're just, you know, I've just said to him, look, let's just play in C Dorian, play whatever you want. And, you know, we used to do that. And when he graduated so quickly from being a beginner into someone who could really improvise and he, he was such a good student uh, that we could literally sit back to back like weather permitting in my backyard with our uh, guitars and we would just play. We would just improvise and just listen to the cascading notes. And we found a beauty in that. We found that there was a artistic communication between us in that exchange that we loved and it, it, it enriched our uh, personal musical journey as well as just being plain old fun. You know, I have to say we're both shameless lovers of the rock and roll thing you know <laughs> do you still have fun with that? i mean do you still rock out by yourself and just still get the goosebumps when you're flying <laughs> in a blue dream for like a better term <laughs> yeah 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 i i do i really do love it and i i think um you know one of the things is kind of important it came up in an interview uh, just two days ago uh it, it centered around hendrix and and you know when I started to play guitar, as the, I told you the story, the days following that decision, um, I learned and had to really come to grips with the story that had uh, ultimately resulted in Jimi Hendrix dying. And so he was haunted and, uh, you know, haunted by what he had created, the, the, the entertainer, Jimi Hendrix, the entertainer. He was trying to be taken seriously and it was beginning to drive him crazy uh the rock and roll ethics the show part the entertainment part of it and i remember thinking well i certainly don't want to die when i'm 27 so i need to avoid what all these people and there were quite a few people dying at that time you know rock and roll stars were overdosing and whatnot and i i was just thinking like well you know, I, I need to, I'm not this person. First of all, I'm shy. I don't really know how to walk out on stage. It terrifies me. Um, so I'm wow. not that kind of a personality, you know? Really? And uh, I didn't, I thought, well, I'm just, I'm going to keep it simple and keep it about the music as much as I can. So, you know, but then I have this buddy of mine, my best friend, who's just kind of like the opposite. Steve is like a natural to walk on stage and to do the full entertainment. <laughs> yeah. And and this difference is really fun. I find it really a lot of fun. Um an introvert and an extrovert. Starting G when we were starting G3 and Steve said, what side of the stage should I be on? I said, what side of the stage? You're going in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like I want you to be in the middle, man. You know, it's like you're the ones going to do that. Cause I know Eric and I are going to be, you know, maybe looking down a bit. <laughs> more than we should. Uh, so um, I don't know, I'm going off on a tangent here, but um, there's so there's so much about uh, that, I, that I could go on and on about uh, the players that I've invited on G3. Uh, but I suppose 
I can crystallize it by saying I really want to celebrate the differences. Uh, they've all been the, the best musicians ever, and they walk on stage with the, the best intentions, and they're all different, and we're all different from each other, and we just give each other space to show that and, and you know, lift the audience. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today, sir. It's the G3 tour. It's going on, starting kicking off on January 23rd in Tucson, Arizona, and wrapping up on the February 10th in Los Angeles, California. And it looks like you guys also have a, a cruise, a Monsters of Rock cruise in Miami. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I should mention, you know, that the, uh, the G3 tour is also being filmed, not for a concert film, but for a documentary. My son, Zizi, who turned four just as we started the G3 tours. And that was the wow. beginning of him spending his life with his parents on the road, going out on these tours. So he kind wow. of grew up uh, on these tour buses, hanging out with Steve I and Eric Johnson, <laughs> Robert Fripp. Uh, and uh, he he's a young filmmaker and he wanted to sort of figure out how to tell the story about, you know, what is it like to grow up with a really strange father <laughs> and uh, alongside G3 and um, what, you know, and sort of parallel what the guitar means to each one of these people who have been part of G3. And uh, so he's, he's been around the world uh, interviewing Brian May and Robert Fripp and he'll be in New York. Uh, Love to with, talk to uh, him. Uh, Steve Miller and John Petrucci and Al Miola. He's got, Tom Morello, even even uh, Nigel Tufnell uh, talking about the guitar, um, and it's going to come. The film is going to actually culminate with uh, those last two shows um, in uh, Los Angeles at the Orpheum Theater. Um, so uh, it it's really it's an interesting thing that we've embarked on. Not only is it the you know the sort of getting together again the original G three lineup the reunion tour, but having it documented by ZZ has been quite unique. And it's been revealing a lot more about how all of us feel, uh, not only about the, the G3 tour, uh, but just guitar, our lives with the guitar, because we've been doing it for a long time, you know? And uh, so uh, ZZ has been prying these things out of us, getting us to reveal our feelings as well as our secrets and uh, impressions about guitar and music. Um, so, and you mentioned the cruise. Yeah. What, I'm doing a monsters cruise. It's my first cruise. Never even been on a cruise ship. <laughs> so bring some drama mean for me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Big thanks to Joe Satriani for stopping by Newsweek radio. That was the opportunity of a lifetime in my book to talk to somebody like that. I hope I get the chance to do it again soon because I've got like so many more questions now after all those other questions, I, I was floored actually here in this interview that Joe is such an introvert because I'm an introvert too. And I had no idea that he was such an introvert and that Steve Vai is kind of his polar opposite. I'm going to be talking to Steve Vai here too in the very near future. A big thing I can't wait to show you. Also talking to Eric Johnson. That'll be next. We'll talk to Eric Johnson in the next interview that I do here on Newsweek Radio. And then coming up after that is a very special interview with Steve Vai. There are so many good guitar players I've been talking to recently. It's like there is no best, right? And that's one thing I'm learning here. There is no best. Once you reach this certain apex of, of God guitarism, then you just are 
You just are. <laughs> There's no compare or contrast when you're when you're that damn good. And these guys are are the best at what they do, and it's it's so awesome to be able to talk to them. I'm a huge geeked out fanboy, and I'm not I'm not ashamed to admit it. So stay tuned. More Newsweek Radio coming up with more big interviews with some of the world's best guitarists. And of course, top headlines from around the world from Newsweek.com. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>